0: All right, if you'll uh, take your Bible and open to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Next week we'll be back to the Gospel of Luke. But today I want us to look at Philippians chapter 1 and uh, verse 21. It's the beginning of the year. It's a holiday and I wanted to do something special. And I've actually always wanted to to look at this verse. This is a a very famous verse, definitely a good one for the beginning of the year. Uh, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I want to talk with you about uh, the last part, especially. We're going to look at the whole thing, really, but we'll start here with to die. For me, to die. Death. In other words, I want to talk with you a little about how you think about death. This is how Paul thinks about death. How do you think about death? And I want to talk with you about how you think about death because I think for most of us, the way we think about death is we don't think about death. I know for me, that's my favorite way to think about death, to not think about death. One of my favorite books this last year was a book called Remember Death. How do you like that title? It sounds like a strange title, doesn't it? Remember Death. Remember Death. But it had a a big impact on me, and uh, it's probably one of the most important books I read this last year, and you're going to hear a lot from it in this message, so I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. But he titles it like that, Remember Death, Because We Do Forget Death. Uh, We don't think much about death. We definitely don't think as much about death as people used to, uh, partially because uh, we don't have to think about death as often as people used to. People had to think about death a lot more in the past because, uh, for one thing, they died earlier than we typically do. Apparently, at the end of the 18th century, four out of uh, five people died before the age of 70. The average life expectancy was in the late 30s, so you were having your uh, midlife crisis around 17 or 18. If you had 11 children, many of those children would not survive uh, childhood, and uh, when People died when your children died, and when others died, they usually died at home, so you would see it. You couldn't escape death. In uh, previous centuries, death happened where life happened. This is a quote. Death by disease was often a slow, agonizing process without the help of pain-controlling medication. This happened to someone you loved, perhaps in the room where you slept, in a place where you would see the agony and hear the moans or the screams which sounds terrible, right? That sounds uh, really terrible. But it did make death hard to forget. That was one positive benefit. You wouldn't need a book titled Remember Death because it was kind of everywhere in your face. How could you forget death? And he brings up a book, actually. The author of Remember Death brings up another book called How We Die. And apparently that book describes what it's like to die of, uh, typically die of uh, different diseases like cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's. So familiar stuff to those of you who are doctors, but not to the rest of us. And he says that one of the striking things to him about that particular book is that it's even necessary. Like, why do we need that book, How We Die? We need that book. Someone, we need someone to, to tell us how people typically die because we don't typically see it. Death is like a foreign country to most of us. We've heard about it, but we don't really know it. And most of us actually probably kind of like it like that. <laughs> Uh, I like it like that. I don't naturally like to, we don't usually like to think about death. So my uh, daughter Cambria worked at an assisted living home uh, this past year, and she really loved the people she worked with. But I'll tell you, that was a hard job. And part of why it was hard was because she was forced to see what happens. And it's tempting to not want to see what happens, to think if we just don't think about it, that's a solution feel like it's a little like being on a plane that's crashing. You know it's crashing. You don't know when it's crashing. You just know it's going to crash. But you don't want to talk about it crashing. Like if I just don't think about the fact that it's going to crash, that's going to change things. There was another article written, written called The Pornography of Death. And that's an interesting title too. But the author of that article makes an analogy. And this is a quote. He says, He makes an analogy between the place of sex in the 19th century and the place of death in the 20th century. Even as the prominence of sex has broadened in conversation and mainstream television and what kids are allowed to see and know, death has been shoved out of sight and out of mind. And he goes on, he says, in the 1870s when death was everywhere, it would have been embarrassing to bring up sex at a dinner party. It would have been shameful to admit you think much about sex. It would have been irresponsible to talk to your kids about sex. But by the 1950s, the taboo had shifted. Death had already become in the 20th century what sex had been to the 19th century. In the 19th century, adults told children that babies came when storks dropped them at the front door. Those same children stood beside as their loved ones die. Now kids learn that grandpa's death means he's gone to a place where he can play golf or go fishing all day. Meanwhile, kids have almost constant access to sexual content in their Instagram feeds. We don't talk about death. But when we do talk about it, we talk about it as if it were so surprising. Even me, almost every time I hear about somebody dying, I'm, I'm thinking, how could they die? How, how is that possible? It seems so surprising. And that's partially because we don't think about death, or at least we try not to, which is a different approach than Christians took in the past. While it feels kind of normal for us to not think about death, It's not always been normal. Christians used to be encouraged to deliberately choose to think about death, to meditate on it a little. Not only did they see it when they went to church, they were often encouraged to think about it. I mean, listen to this quote from Cotton Mather. He says, when we sit at our tables, let us think I shall shortly be a morsel for the worms. When we rest in our lodgings, let us think a cold grave will shortly be my bed. And when we view the chest in which we put our treasures let us think a little black chest is that wherein i myself shortly may be locked up which is different right it's like come on i mean how would you like how would you like it if somebody said that to you you'd be like what you know you're sitting around the dinner table what are you thinking about i'm thinking about i am soon going to be a morsel for the worms you would be like you are weird no I am not going to think about that kind of stuff because we don't like to think about death and we don't want to think about death. And there's a sense in which that's understandable, of course, because death is terrible. It's not the way the world's supposed to be, but it is the way the world is right now. And so not thinking about death is a problem. That's a bad choice, first of all, because it's not real. It's not living in reality. One man explains, if you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. You find another illustration, you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? And yet we try. Obviously, trying to hide a rhinoceros is, is not a good solution in, in your house, and putting a, a rug over a massive sinkhole in the middle of your living room doesn't solve the problem. It's delusional. What do you call it when, when someone's ignoring a problem? If someone's in a huge debt, and they are like, I'm just going to pretend like I don't have debt. You don't call that wise, that's for sure. It's not positive. Death is going to happen, not just to other people, but to you, to, to me. And so not thinking about it is a problem because death is going to happen, and when it happens, it's a big deal. It's going to change your life, that's for sure. And it's a problem because it's connected back to a pre-salvation way of thinking and living. So not thinking about death makes sense for people who are afraid of it. And a lot of people are afraid of it. This is a fundamental human Fear. I know some people are like, I'm not afraid of death, I'm just afraid of the process of dying. But come on, I, I, I at least know what it's like to be afraid of, of death, not just the process. Death is a big deal. It came into this world as a punishment, and Satan takes advantage of that. The fear of death is one way he holds people in bondage. But we have been delivered by the, from the fear of death by the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can think about it without being all morbid. And we should think about it. There is a right way for believers to think about death. Not thinking about it is the wrong way. And there is a right way. And I want us to think about the right way to think about death today and how to think about it like that. We're not going to get all of it because this is a big topic, but we're going to look at the way that Paul thought about death. That's number one. And then I want us to figure out how he thought about death like that. That's number two. What Paul thought about death and how he thought about it like that, because I think if we think about death the way Paul thought about death, it will transform our lives. There's hardly anything that will have more of an impact on how you live your life than how you think about death. So how did Paul think about death here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21? And you need to know, as we look at this, the reason he's talking about death is because he's in a life or death situation. So I know that someone talking about death that you think is maybe young or healthy, you might be like, wow, tell me how you think about death when you're facing death. And I get that, of course, but Paul's different. And he's even writing this letter from a time when he is in prison facing death. So this is not like from a comfortable spot. Instead, this is probably the time he was in a Roman prison. And it seems like His life is on the line, but he thinks he's probably going to get out, actually, because he says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. But then he seems to qualify that in the next verse. It's not certain certain, because verse 20 he says, As it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, which means... This is not someone with no concept of death talking here or someone who's far removed from the possibility of dying either. Even though, yeah, Paul was expecting to get out, but if you're sitting in a Roman prison in the first century without God directly telling you the future, almost anything can happen, and Paul clearly recognizes that, and in that context, he gives the Philippian church his perspective on death. He says at the end of verse 21, look at it, to die is gain. That's our little phrase that we're focusing on. And we're focusing on it because it's shocking. That's shocking. It's Paul's perspective on death and it's shocking. And to help you see how shocking, I want you to think about the words to die and gain. Because those words to die and gain are not words that you would think to put together. Because death is something that is almost defined by loss, the opposite of gain. It's legitimately sad. I mean, even step back and think about a full biblical perspective on death for a minute. Because though we're getting like a snapshot of a biblical perspective on death here, to die is gain, to understand that snapshot, why it's shocking, you have to understand that's not all the Bible says about death. It doesn't only say to die is gain. In fact, that's not even all Paul said about death. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, which is just a, a couple books earlier, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death and what's he calling death there the last enemy death is an enemy an enemy is a bad thing and he can describe death like that because if you look back when God originally made the world there was no death and so I guess if you're an unbeliever maybe you think death is just the way it always was even though deep down I think you know it's not that's why you don't like to think about it And that may be as a residue of the image of God in you or some faint memory, almost, because the Bible says death is not always the way it was. There was a time when there was no death. Death came into the world as a consequence of man's rebellion against God. In fact, in one place, Paul says the wages of sin is death. And in another place, Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through death and death through sin, which is one thing I like about the Bible, actually. The Bible is such a realistic book. It doesn't just... Sugarcoat things, which is the way a lot of people deal with death nowadays. If they don't ignore it, they try to sugarcoat it, and they, make it, they try to make it sound almost as if it's normal or it's kind of nice. In that book I was telling you about earlier, Remember Death, he talks about an article called The American Way of Death. And this was written a while ago, so maybe some things have changed, but the author of that article was an investigative journalist, and she researched the funeral industry. And what she found was that the funeral industry basically revolved around making death seem positive. So listen to this. Studying trade magazines with names like Mortuary Management, uh, Mitford, that's the author of the article, found a startling range of products for the dead being marketed with qualities desired by the living. And so in other words, she found the way products for dead people were advertised was very similar to the way products for living people were advertised. And so for example, advertisements for burial clothing would use the comfort of the deceased loved one as their primary appeal. In fact, one company called Practical Burial Footwear offered the popular and luxurious Fit-a-Foot Oxford, which apparently was available in a, a, a range of different premium leathers. And for the ladies, they even had pink velvet pumps. And then there was the cozy, a shoe with soft cushioned soles and a warm luxurious slipper comfort. And then there are the caskets, and comfort is a major emphasis for the casket interior, apparently. So you could purchase caskets with adjustable soft foam mattresses, for example, or choose from a range of fabrics for the lining from the simple softness of linen to a rich quilted velvet. And even burial plots are marketed based on the quality of experience, dare we say, quality of life of the corpse. Mitford mentioned that in earlier periods, the dead were buried in home plots in a rural setting or in churchyards or public cemeteries. But by the 20th century, the for-profit cemetery had become the new normal. And with that for-profit status came a range of products with a a range of prices. And one of the most uh, expensive is here in Los Angeles uh, where they would actually, uh, the price of the plot would be based on the quality of the view or the beauty of the gardens. There was even a premium tier with inspirational music piped in around the clock. Which is not this huge big deal, I guess, if it's just a way of expressing love or mourning or care. But it's a problem if we think it makes a difference for the dead. Because it means we're not really recognizing the seriousness of death. Death is not okay. And we shouldn't act as if it's just normal. Which is another way people respond that's different than the Bible. Is that they get used to it. And so maybe they don't sugarcoat death, but they get used to it. They act like it's normal. And this is something that happens when people have seen a lot of death. And I guess sometimes that's a mercy if uh, people have jobs where they have to deal with death a lot and make decisions. They have to respond a little differently to love people well in those situations. But biblically, no matter how often you see it, down there in the core of you, death is not something you're supposed to get used to. It's not something you're supposed to look at and think, oh, this is normal, the circle of life or something. Just because it happens a lot doesn't make it less scary. If anything, it makes it more scary. Julian Barnes, he's an author, and some of you probably know him from Downton Abbey, but he talks about how people used to be afraid of flying, or how he used to be afraid of flying, actually. And then one day he went to the airport, and when he was at the airport, he was watching plane after plane take off and not crash. And so seeing all those planes take off so often without crashing made him realize, you know, I shouldn't be as afraid of this. But death is almost the opposite. With death, it's like you go to the airport and you see plane after plane crash, like every single plane. Can you imagine? Would you say, oh, now I'm more comfortable with getting on a plane after seeing all that? Of course not. And the death rate for humans is almost 100%. And so the Bible doesn't teach us to sugarcoat death or to treat death as if it were something normal because it's a problem. And part of the glory of of being a human is knowing it's a problem because animals don't know it's a problem in the same way we do. We know it's a problem. And actually one way you can see what a problem it is is to take any good statement you make about life and then finish it with and then you die. Have you ever tried to do that? So you work your whole life, you earn a million dollars, and then you die. You write a novel, you get really famous and respected, and then you die. There's a a famous author, Leo Tolstoy, who uh, actually asked that very question. He says, my question that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Which is not a question that he came up with. It's not original. There's a whole book of the Bible basically written to help get people thinking about that question long before Tolstoy. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And really, you could summarize the whole book of Ecclesiastes as answering this question. If we're all going to die, how should we live? And one of the things the author does is show all the possible answers, and he exposes the emptiness of thing after thing that people are living for. So like you name the good thing, maybe wisdom, because that seems like a good thing. And this is what Ecclesiastes says. It's good while you're alive. It's like being able to see, but what good are eyes on a dead man? Or reputation. Most of us want a good reputation, but most of us won't be remembered for very long. I was uh, kind of humbled thinking about this recently. So think about your great-granddad as an example. This is the father of the father of your father, which is a hard way to say it. (laughs) But we're not talking about someone very far back, right? Like your great-granddad. And obviously, we're talking about someone who was pretty important to your family line. Like your, uh, your grandfather kind of cared about your great-grandfather, for sure. But my guess is most of us don't even know the names of all our great-grandfathers. Like if I stopped you and said, give me all your great-grandfather's names. Most of us don't know. And we might not even know the names of any of them. And they're not that long ago. And that's even in our own families. And you know what? Even if we did, even if we did know their names... Even if there's like a statue of your great-grandfather somewhere, or even if there's a building named after him, it doesn't matter to him if he's not alive. They were toppling all those statues a while back. You hear about that every once in a while, somebody toppling a statue. And it's supposed to be a big statement, and maybe it is, but I'll tell you who it doesn't bother at all. It doesn't bother the person whose statue it is because usually they're dead, and they have no idea their statue is being toppled over. And most of them... They they don't even know they have a statue. Death is like a thief. I was thinking the other day of Steve Jobs. How rich was he? They said he he had something like $10.2 billion or something. But you know how much money he has now? None. He's poorer than all of us. There's nobody here that is poorer than Steve Jobs. Death is not okay. It's, It's not normal. Death is a problem. In fact, let's do this. And I got this illustration from somebody else, but... Uh, It's so good. Take a second second and think about something you've always wanted, like um, maybe something you think about almost every day. And this is your if only. If only this happened, I would be happy. And so maybe it could be getting a certain job, having so much money, whatever. And then imagine one day you get it. You get it. Everything you dreamed. But then the same day, you go to the doctor, and he tells you that you have a terminal disease, And you've got one month to live. When you go to bed that night, what are you thinking about? Which is why for many people, death seems like the ultimate problem, right? The worst thing that could happen. And yet here, Paul says, to die is gain. And what does the word gain mean? Gain, gain, gain. I looked it up, even though it's kind of obvious. But it means profit. Benefit. This is the definition, an advantage or benefit that is received or acquired. And so he's looking at this enemy, Paul, that he acknowledges as an enemy. He gets how terrible it is. And Paul's single, but he really loved people. He calls Timothy his son, so he knows family. And I don't think he's going to ask us not to feel the pain of death when it comes to the time. But at the same time, without minimizing it or sugarcoating it or being delusional, He's still actually saying that he sees death as something that is beneficial. It's gain. And the question is, how can he say that? How can he say that? That's what he says. That's his perspective on death. That was our first point. But how can he say that? That's second. And that's, that's key. How can we look at death as gain? To understand how Paul can say that, you have to look at the verses that go before Philippians 1.21 and the verses that go after. And we're going to look at the verses that go after first, verse 22, because Paul sort of, it's like he's opening up his heart to the Philippians here as he's sitting in jail and he's thinking about the fact that he might possibly die and it's like he's weighing his options and he says, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And so this is the first answer right, right there as to how death is gained. It's how Paul understands death. It's not the end. Some people think it's the end. It's not the end for the Christian. It's departing and being with Christ. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's death to Paul. And this is not where I'm going to spend uh, most of our time here, but this is foundational. If death is going to be gain, somebody had to defeat death. There has to be more than just death. There has to be more than just live and die, and that's it, for death to be gained. If death is the end, it is just loss. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If death is the end, it is just loss. And you can prove that by looking at the way Paul thought about death, if death were the end. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, he says, you probably know this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men." and we could preach a whole sermon on that, but I bold print that last sentence. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men, because that's how he thinks about death for the Christian if death is the end. The first reason Paul can say death is gain, how? Is because he knows that it's not the end, because he knows the gospel. In other words, He knows that God has a plan to fix everything that's wrong in this world, and that means he's going to deal with all the death, and he's going to recreate the universe into something perfect and beautiful, and he's going to establish Jesus as king through whom he's going to rule over this recreated perfect universe forever and ever. And Paul is sure of that because Jesus rose from the dead. The reason there is even death in this world is because of sin, and sin deserves God's judgment. And so God sent his righteous son to become man, to live a perfect life, and die in the place of unrighteous sinners so that those who trust in him could be forgiven. And God the Father raised his son, Jesus, from the dead so that they could rise from the dead as well and live forever with him. That's the gospel, basically, the good news. And the gospel means that for everyone who is a believer, death is gained. You have been born again to a living hope that is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, because death means, for the Christian, departing and being with Christ, not just for Paul, but for all of us. But here's the thing. (laughs) That's not how we always think of death, is it? Not really, like in our heart of hearts. For me, I know it's not how I always think about death. Maybe for some of you it is, which is great, but I think for a lot of people, even people going to church, even Christians, it's not. For a lot of people, what matters most is survival. That's what they want most, to survive. And this is uh, where we kind of have to be a little nuanced, because it's right to want to live, of course, but there's a difference between wanting to live and being obsessed with living, and some people are obsessed Death is the worst for them. It's only an enemy to them. And so what matters more than anything else is surviving. And so I want to press on this a little bit because I need to hear it because Paul is not only giving an objective reality here. I mean, he's not only saying that death is gain because of the resurrection. He's sharing his heart. He's saying this is how he, in this situation where he's faced with the possibility of dying, is thinking about it. It was gain. It was something he desired. And he's actually giving his example here because he's he's going to want the Philippians to imitate it. And so that means we have to be asking, how did he think about death like that? Not depressed, like, oh, I want to die, or this life is so terrible. No, this life is good. It's hard, but it's good, and there's lots to do for Jesus. But I still see death as something that's going to bring me profit, gain. How? That didn't happen just because Paul knew the gospel. It was because he was applying the gospel. These are the two parts for death to be gain. There has to be the gospel. Jesus has to defeat death, but you can't stop there for you to think of death like gain. You have to apply the gospel. So look at the verses that go before now, verse 21, that go before verse 21, starting back up in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what happened to Paul? If you know the story you know he's been in prison for years literally at this point and for totally unfair reasons so from a human perspective a lot of what happened to Paul right before this was government corruption actually and yet here's how he looks at it it's really served to advance the gospel that's the primary thing on his mind and how did it advance the gospel it advanced the gospel because Paul's been sharing the gospel verse 13 so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul's in prison for the gospel, and what he's focused on is spreading the gospel. First of all, making clear to everyone why he's in chains, and that's having an impact on other believers as his courage is giving them courage to share the gospel as well. And yet even as he's doing that, there are people out there who are still wanting to you know, make Paul look small, and not just non-Christians, even people who claim to be believers, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, which is pretty sad, right? And yet, how is Paul responding, verse 18? What then? Or you could say, but what does it matter? It's not really a big deal to him. Why? Why? only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, which is amazing. All this is happening to Paul, and he's experiencing joy. How? For I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And deliverance meaning either he's going to be delivered from prison or taken to heaven. And so he's not really focused on changing his situation, but what's he focused on instead? Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope, which are synonyms, I expect, I hope. He's just using a couple terms here to emphasize what he's really wanting, which is what? That I will not at all be ashamed. He's really hoping that he won't be ashamed. But what does he mean by that? He means that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so Paul's in prison. He's preaching the gospel. He's being attacked. He's not sure whether he's going to live or die. How's he responding? He's rejoicing, and he's going to keep rejoicing. Why? Because he knows he's going to be delivered. He's either going to get out of prison or he's going to go to heaven. And so his primary focus is what? That Christ will be exalted, whether he lives or dies. That's the main thing for Paul. And why does Paul think like that? Verse 21 is the answer. Here's why. For to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to me personally, to live is Christ. And this is so key, because if you're going to think about death the way Paul does, you need to learn to think about life the way Paul does. And again, we want to think about death as gain, appropriately, of course, because I know we do have family, we do have children, and Paul in other places recognizes your interests are divided a little if you have family and children. But at the same time, core level, at the base, it still is gain because of the resurrection. And we want to think of death as gain. Because if we really believe that, it's going to change so many things in our lives. I mean, this is the answer to a lot of problems, counseling problems. If death is gain, what are you you going to be scared of? If death is gain, what are you going to complain about? But how can we get to where we think of death as gain? It starts with a change in the way we think about life. How did Paul think about life? Christ. To me, to live is Christ. Christ. And what did that mean for Paul practically? Because it wasn't just a saying. It wasn't just a saying. If you go back and look at Paul's situation, he's saying he's focused on Christ, to live his Christ. But what are some things he could have been focused on instead? For starters, he's in prison. He says he's chained. And later in Philippians, we'll see that he, when he was in prison, none of the other churches that he planted were, wanting, were able to help him. And plus, I don't know how it's happening, but somehow he's got people who are preaching the gospel out of envy or rivalry, and he says they're doing it because they're supposing they can stir up trouble for him while he's in chains. And so what are some of the other options of things that he could have been focused on? Maybe comfort would be one, or freedom would be another. That's kind of a big thing, getting out of prison or his own reputation even, the people who are hurting him, he could have thought about. I mean, if you're in that situation and you're writing, I eagerly expect and hope, what are you eagerly expecting and hoping? I eagerly expect and hope that I will live, maybe. I eagerly expect and hope that I'll get out of prison. I eagerly expect and hope that the people who are giving me a hard time would get what they deserve. There are lots of different possibilities and all of those make sense if to live is Paul, but what Paul is eagerly expecting and hoping is that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be magnified. Why? Why is Paul thinking that way? Again, here it is. This is key. For to me, to live is Christ. This is all I'm about. It's one thing. To me, to live is Christ and really to die is Christ as well, because it means departing and being with Christ. My whole life is Christ, in other words. It's like I'm immersed in Christ. Which, listen, is objectively true for all of you who are believers as well. That's the thing. If you're a Christian, that's not just true for Paul. If you are a Christian, to live, listen to me now, is Christ. That is what is real. That is what the gospel has done your life now, if you're a Christian, is Christ. That's objectively true. This is one of Paul's favorite explanations of being a Christian. It's being in Christ. It's like God takes you and puts you in Christ. And so there's a really cool explanation of how the Christian life works over in Colossians chapter 2 and 3. If you just turn there for a minute, it's like the next book. And Paul is distinguishing... Christianity from religiosity there because the Colossians were being tempted to turn away from Christ for Christ not to be everything and so Paul's like you can't settle for religiosity which is really just getting so focused on these little things you do to earn favor with God and the reason you can't settle for that is because you're united to Christ which means you died with Christ that's part of what the gospel reveals but then the question is how are you to live the Christian life if it's not religiosity and Paul explains and this is the part I'm going to quote Colossians 3 verse 1 Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, live for Christ, live for Christ, why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And do you see the flow there? If you are a Christian, Christ is your life. That is reality. That is objectively true for anyone who's ever become a believer. That is what the gospel reveals. You died with Christ. Christ is your life. But here's where I'm trying to push you today. That shouldn't just be true of you objectively. That needs to become your perspective on life. That is what is real. So live like it's real. That is what is real. So live like it's real. real. You have to apply the gospel. It can't be for me to live as Josh anymore or for you to live whatever your name is anymore because it's not, it's not. To live is Christ. And this is like a test because how do we know it's not like that for you anymore? How do I know that life is not Josh anymore or that life is not your name anymore? One way is how you think about death. How do you think about death? If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. Because it means being with Christ. And if death is not gain, if that's not your perspective on death, you have to ask, is life Christ? And obviously there's going to be some tension. There was for Paul. He says in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. But even the reason he was hard pressed was not for him, but for others. he knew for him to die was gain and I wonder do you think of death like that not because you've given up on life or something sad or because you're looking for a way out but because you believe the gospel Christ is your life and you apply the gospel you want to be with Christ which sounds so spiritual right and I'm sure you know this is the right thing to say Probably some of you who grew up going to youth group, you're like, oh, yeah, to me, to live is Christ, to die is Cain. You know you're supposed to say that. But how do we know? How do we actually know you think about death like that? It shows up in how you think about life. The two are connected. How you think about life, how you think about death are connected. And so let me try to get practical for a minute because this is where Paul's going. If to live is Christ for you, and to die is gain, if that's real, how does that impact you? How would that impact a person? What difference will it make if that really were the way you were living? Look at Paul, because he's giving his own example here. What difference does it make? He's uncomfortable, but what's he thinking? He's thinking, is this advancing the gospel? Comfortable, not advancing the gospel. Uncomfortable, advancing the gospel. Which do you think Paul chooses? Uncomfortable. Why? Because he likes being uncomfortable? No. Because his life is advancing the cause of Christ. His life is not comfort. His life is not Paul. He's being mistreated and people are saying offensive things to him. But he's like, it doesn't matter to me. He's rejoicing. Because somehow in this setting, he's convinced Christ is still being glorified. And so he's not worried what's happening to him, about what's happening to him in this situation. He knows whatever happens to him, it's going to be deliverance. If he dies or lives, it's deliverance. But you know, which does he want? He, He would rather die, to be honest, because that would be gained, because it means he would finally be with Christ. But he knows if he lives, it will mean fruitful labor for him, and so he's torn. This is like a tough question for him, because for him personally, dying would be better, but for the Philippians, living would be better. Verse 24, he says it's more necessary for the Philippians that he remains in the body. And so, verse 25, he's convinced that he's going to remain. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And what's he going to do then? Even though it's not better for him personally, it's not going to slow him down. He's just going to do what he's always done, which is use his life to exalt Christ. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And here's what I'm trying to get at. How do I know death is gain to me? It's not just, oh, I always feel great about death because death is hard. So I don't think that's the ultimate test, test, just a feeling. It's a lifestyle. Death is gain to me if life is Christ to me. And yet, how do I know life is Christ to me? It's not just what you say. It's not just what you say. It shows up in what is a priority for you when you're in uncomfortable circumstances. It shows up in the way you respond when people offend you. It shows up in what you want most when you're in difficult situations. And that's where Paul is taking this, and that's why he's giving them his example, because he wants the Philippians to apply this very specifically to the way they approach their lives. Look at verse 27. Only, whatever happens, if you live, if you die, what should you be concerned about? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, what's true of me in here in prison needs to be true of you out there. Your primary concern as you think about your life should be the same as my primary concern, which is what will honor Christ most? Paul says, this is how I think, and this is how you should think about life and about death. But again, how do you do that in real life? How do you think of death right? Because obviously we know to to think of death like gain, you have to think of life like Christ, but where can you start? You know, like, where could you start working on changing your life this year? Because that's not usually how we think of life. I mean, in the, in the, some of us are really living delusional lives. We're living like we're not going to die, and we're living for the same priorities the world the world, as the world is. And so we need to flip it, because we are going to die. And after that, we face Jesus. <laughs> we stand, we're with Jesus. And so it's good. And so that should change the way we live life. It, it means our life now needs, our priority needs to be not just Josh or you. It needs to be, it needs to be Christ. But how? How? That's reality for us as believers. Living is Christ. But how, how do we learn to live like that? There are two ways Paul brings up here, two steps you can take. And we don't really have time, but I need to mention them at least. Two steps you can take this year to prepare to die so you can really live. And don't wait till you're 85 to prepare to die. So this, this week, this is off the notes, but this week I, got, I had to have a little uh, little thing at the hospital. And so I was, you know, sitting there with that funny little robe on, being all embarrassed, and, and thinking, this is like preparation. If the Lord lets me live to be 80 or not, this is like a chance for me to prepare to be in this spot soon. <laughs> Who knows how soon, but it's going to feel soon. God gives us all these years to get ready to die. And yet so many of us waste so many of our years. And so when it comes, we're not ready. Like when you're 85, you don't get to go back and hit redo so you can get ready. You need to get ready now. God's giving you time to get ready to die. How do you get ready? It, change, it starts with the way you change You have to change the way you think about life. And here are two, two steps you can take to prepare to die. First, make the advancement of the gospel a greater priority than your own personal comfort. Again, verse 27. Only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what's going to be the result of that, the fruit of that? So that whether I come and see you or i am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul's like, if honoring Christ is your life, then I know when you start getting persecuted for the gospel and it starts hurting you to follow Jesus and do what he wants, You're not going to be concerned about getting out of that as much as you are going to be focused on standing firm with other believers and fighting for the truth of the gospel. Why? Ultimately, because you're most concerned about what Christ is most concerned about. Verse 27. You you know this isn't just happening. You connect it to what God's doing. Again, verse 27. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Your persecution is part of God's plan for advancing the gospel, and you don't run from that because you know it's a sign. And why? Why would suffering be a sign that you're being saved by God? Because suffering for the advancement of the gospel is something you're choosing to do for Christ. It proves your faith is real. That's the only reason you would do this. This is what what Jesus gave his life for. This is what you give your life for, which makes suffering for proclaiming the gospel kind of a gift. Actually, verse 29, For it's been granted to you, it's like given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. And so you can rejoice when you make the advancement of the gospel a greater priority than your own personal comfort because it means you're playing a part like Paul played in God's great redemptive plan. And the only reason you would be willing to do that the way Paul was willing to do that was because Christ is your life. You, you want his honor more than your own personal comfort. That's first. If you want to change the way you think about death, you need to change the way you think about life and make the advancement of the gospel a greater priority than your own personal comfort. What are some ways you can do that this year? You start putting your treasure there, it's going to give you strength as you think about dying. And second, you need to make the spiritual good of other believers more important than your own ambitions, your own reputation, and your own interests. And this would be almost the rest of chapter two, but let me just read part of it. Verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his life, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, in other words, if you know what it is for Christ to be your life at all, then what? Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because that almost sounds crazy. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others better than yourselves. Why would you live like that? Because to live is Christ, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is what it means. To live like Jesus is your life. And really, we're just getting started. But I guess I'm just hoping at the beginning of this year that you will take some time to think about something you probably don't like to think about. The way you think about death. And I want you to think about the way you think about death because the way you think about death is connected to the way you think about life. What does the way you think about death reveal how you think about life? And so I'm not asking you to love the idea of death and certainly not to love thinking about it all the time, obviously, because it's a consequence of sin and it's sad, but it's not the end as believers. We know the gospel means death is gain for us. But the thing is, we're not going to automatically think of it like that. For us to think of death like gain, we have to think about life differently. And that's hard because we got a whole world out there discipling us, mentoring us, to think that this life is all there is. And so some of us live delusional lives. For you to live like your life is you if you're a Christian is delusional, because it's not you. Your life is Christ. Then that sounds hard. At first, it sounds good to us to say, you know, life is Josh and to make my comfort most important and make what I want more important than other people. That sounds like freedom. Sounds kind of nice. But I'm telling you, if you're thinking of life like that, it's not real, so it's not gonna work. And you're not gonna be thinking of death as gain. And what happens, if you're, what happens to you if you're not thinking of death as gain? What happens is that the whole Christian life starts not making sense. The whole Christian life doesn't make sense if death's not gain. You see that, right? And it it will make you miss out on so much of the joy of what God is doing. Because imagine Paul here. Imagine Paul writing Philippians. If life isn't Christ to him and if death isn't gain, what's he writing? It's not Philippians 1, I'll tell you that. He's going to be a miserable person sitting there in prison with people trying to hurt him. And so this is important as you look ahead to this year, a really joyful, free Christian life is characterized by a radically different view of death. And where, as a Christian, do you start looking at death differently? You start with how you look at life. Make living a life worthy of the gospel your most important priority this year. What would that look like for you? Well, one thing it will look like you're not as concerned about your personal comfort as you are about the advancement of the gospel. And you'll seek to be united with other Christians and work on relationships even when it's hard. And you're not so concerned about your own personal ambitions and the way people are treating you as you are about honoring them and looking out for their interests the way Jesus did for you. Even when it hurts, obey Jesus and do it without grumbling and complaining because that's how you're going to shine for Jesus. Show this world that Jesus is your life, which of course is what we really want most this next year as a church. We want that according to our earnest expectation and hope. We will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will be exalted in our church body, whether we live, whether we die, whether we prosper, whether we suffer. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just pray that you'll preach this message now. I, I tried, but I ask that you will, your Holy Spirit will take your word and and take it deep because this is deep Lord this is if we understand this it will it will make us different (laughs) it will make us respond different it will make us our priorities different and Lord we pray that we won't just be like little fish swimming with the flow here uh, ignoring reality but that we will be people who believe the gospel and apply the gospel like Paul and while we're not gonna just start liking something that's an enemy uh, death will realize that this enemy has been defeated and death is actually a doorway to being with you and that's ultimately what we what we want what we long for and we pray this Jesus in your name amen okay.